All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Generation. Uh, glad that you're here this morning. Uh, just a couple of things before we get back into Matthew chapter 11. Uh, so Sarah, uh, you guys enjoy Sarah singing, playing? Yeah, so... Um, uh, just a quick update. If you were with us, probably it's probably six or eight weeks ago, um, uh, we'll let you know that JP was not going to be with the staff anymore. And so I was actually with JP the other day, and he's got uh, three leads, one in Ohio, one in Michigan. It's like, I don't know why you'd ever want to move to either of those two places. And then one in Florida, which is really what he wants. So continue to pray for him and Joy. Stay connected with them. But uh, Sarah is married to uh, Jake. I don't know if Jake's in here right now. Um, uh, but Jake is, I can't say his last name, uh, Weedy Wilt. Did I totally butcher that? Whatever. So, but Jake and Sarah have been with us for the weekend. We're interviewing him for, uh, for that discipleship position. And so get a, if you get a chance in the lobby, meet him, talk to her, uh, but get a chance to connect with them a little bit. And um, just excited to have them with us for the weekend. They've been here since Thursday. And uh, I look forward to, to you getting a chance to meet them as well. And we'll keep you in the, in the loop on maybe what next steps are, uh, are there. And then also, baptism is coming up April 25th. Uh, so if you're interested in doing that, that's a public declaration of what's taking place in your heart. Like, baptism doesn't save us. You don't get baptized to get to heaven. Baptism is what Jesus did, and we follow his act. It's a physical expression of what's happened to our soul as we've our, as our spirits have been dead and buried and we are raised to new life in Christ. So it's symbolic. And so if you haven't done that, if you want to do that, you can do that next weekend. Uh, you can sign up through our website, generationchurch.org, or through the, the Church Center app. And hope that uh, uh, if you're interested, go ahead and do that. And just look forward to you being a part of that with us next week. Great time to, uh, to celebrate. All right, so we're back in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7 is where we're going to pick up uh, today. And we're going to start to see a shift in the way Jesus dealt with the, the crowds. Uh, for the first 10 chapters of Matthew, it's, Matthew's really establishing that Jesus is the king, and Jesus is establishing that he has the authority of the king, that he can do everything he says he can do, that, that he is the Messiah, and he's checking off all of these boxes. We talked about that specifically in Matthew 8 and 9 as the religious leaders were looking and going, man, the Messiah is going to be able to do certain things like like heal a leper. And so Jesus does that. And all of these boxes are being checked and they're going, wait a second, this guy could in fact be the Messiah. But we're going to start to see a shift in Matthew 11 and a lot of that shift we're going to see in Matthew 12 as well, as Jesus starts to change the way he interacts with the crowds. Rather than just what, what seems like from our perspective, like Jesus like randomly handing out miracles, like Oprah hands out cars, like you, know, you get healed and you get healed and you get healed, it's going to see a shift in moving from that to much more intentional in the healings that he did. And we're going to start to see the rejection and Jesus' response to the rejection of the crowds as he has presented this kingdom to them. And they've essentially said, we don't want the kingdom. And the reason they didn't want the kingdom is because Jesus was not meeting their expectations. They weren't doing Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted him to do or what they thought he was going to do. And for them, it all came down to expectations. They expected the Messiah would come, and the Messiah would deliver them from the rule of the Romans. If you think about expectations, for all of us, they, they exist in life. All of us have, have expectations. Every relationship you have, there are expectations. Some are reasonable. Some are unreasonable. Uh, some are known and communicated. Others are assumed. But we all have expectations in relationships. Like if you have a job, you have expectations of 
your boss, and you can certainly believe that your boss has expectations of you. In our marriages, we have expectations. As parents, school, restaurants, businesses that, that, we, uh, that, that we do business, people we do business with. Like uh, several years ago, a lot of you know we lived in Canada for eight years, and uh, I get my skin dries out really bad in the winter, and in Canada, it's really cold, so the heat is pumping all the time in your house, and so my, my skin would crack, it would itch, it would, even, it would even hurt, and so I just, like, I hated winters uh, in Canada, and so we had this furnace, and we had a guy that we knew that worked on furnaces, and so he came along and said, hey, I've got this product. He's like, I can completely replace your furnace. Ours was like 12 years old at the time, and he said, I'll completely replace the furnace, and he promised all of these things. He set the expectations. He said, you'll get newer equipment, it'll be quieter, We'll install some humidifier onto the, the unit that will pump a certain percentage of humidity in the house, and, and, and then your cost is going to go down. So when he said all that, I'm like, I don't care what it costs. I'm, the humidity is going to go up, and I'm not, my skin's not going to be cracking and itching and, and hurting all the time. Like, yeah, like, 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 let's do it. And so he set the expectations, right? I didn't set them. He did. The only thing that unit gave us was newer equipment. It was just as loud, it was just as expensive, and it, the air was just as dry. And, and I remember being frustrated because there were expectations that were set. And it's not like I made up the expectations. It's not like I set the expectation of, man, a, a new unit's gonna tuck our kids in at night and I'm gonna wake up to the smell of like bacon cooking in the morning. Like I didn't set those unreasonable expectations. They set them and then when they failed to deliver, I was frustrated, I was disappointed. And in life, we all have expectations of relationships. We have expectations of each other. As, a, as your pastor, you have expectations of me. And I have expectations of you as well. And so we understand that expectations are a part of relationships. And when expectations over time go unmet, it leads to disappointment. And that's what's happening with the first century, century Jews. And so I want you to keep that, keep that in mind over the course of the next few weeks as we walk through the rest of Matthew 11 and Matthew 12, all of what's going to be said is Jesus' response to, to, the, to the rejection of the crowds and the rejection of the religious leaders. This is his response to knowing that they are not going to receive the kingdom. And so to, to recap last week, we, we see that conversation about John the Baptist. John was experiencing doubt. And so Jesus kind of presses in and says, don't, don't doubt. What have you seen? What have you heard? What have you experienced? And so on the heels of that, the crowds are witnessing this private conversation. And so now Jesus is going to speak directly to the crowds. And in Matthew chapter, chapter 11, verse 7, it says, as Jesus' disciples, or John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. So now Jesus is going to address the crowds. And he says, what kind of man did you go to the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Jesus says to the crowds, like, what did you expect? Like John the Baptist, this, this prophet, this forerunner of Jesus. Jesus said the, the greatest of all born was John. Jesus says to the crowds, what did you think you were going to see when you went out into the wilderness? Did you expect to see a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Reeds are like if, if you've ever taken a, a Coke bottle and like you blow uh, air just over the top of the Coke bottle and it kind of like makes like a wind chime sound to it. Uh, that's, what, that's what the reeds would do. They would dry out, and as the wind would blow through them, they would make this noise. And so it would almost be entertaining. It's kind of like here, like you go to 
uh, like DC to go see the Magnolias or something like that. So here it'd be like, go, go see the reeds, like it's, it's entertaining. You go to listen to them, you go, you go to look at them. And Jesus says to the, to the crowds, he's like, what did you think you were gonna do? Did you think you were just gonna go be entertained? That John was simply gonna be swayed by every breath of, of wind, that, that what you wanted he was gonna say, that he was gonna do what you wanted him to do? He said, what did you expect to see? What were you expecting? Someone that would just merely entertain you? And the crowds had heard reports of John's ministry in the wilderness, and they were intrigued. And so in, in droves, they would go to see John for themselves, and they would hang around for a time because for certain, John's purpose wasn't to be entertaining. But whether you liked John the Baptist or not, John was certainly entertaining. Like I think of today, like whether you like Donald Trump or not, there's definitely something entertaining about, like if I'm flipping channels and he's talking, again, whether I agree with what he's saying or not, I'm gonna watch. Like, like who's got the popcorn? Because the next hour is gonna be super entertaining. And so John the Baptist was that way as well. Whether you liked his message or not, you were entertained and you would, you would stop and you would pause and you would listen. And they, and they were entertained by John because of his message. He preached this message like, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And they'd been anticipating the arrival of this kingdom, so they're, they're entertained by his message. They were entertained or at least intrigued by his unusual style, his appearance, and even his diet. And the crowds liked John because of his forceful aggression towards the religious leaders. The religious leaders would lord over the people. They, they, would, they would treat them like they were inferior. And so for the crowds, they're sitting there, these religious leaders who are way more spiritual than they are, and all of a sudden, John comes along and just starts taking shots at them. And, he's, and they're watching as this tension is forming between John and the religious leaders, between Jesus often and the religious leaders, and the crowds were drawn to that. But then when John was thrown into prison because he could no longer entertain them, that's when the crowds began to turn their attention to Jesus. So Jesus said, what did you think you were going to see when you went out in the wilderness? Verse 8, he said, or, or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Again, he says, what did you expect? What did you expect to see when you got to the wilderness? You went to the desert. You went to the dirty Jordan River, and you expected something other than what you got? It's like you went to the wilderness but thought you were going to see a king. It's like if you wanted to see a king, you should have gone, should have gone to a palace. You ever had a moment like that with someone where, 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 where they're, they're talking about something that they didn't like, and you're like, what did you expect? Like, like, like a few years ago, we were down at the beach with a handful of couples, and we went to a seafood restaurant at the beach. So like seafood restaurant at the beach. One of the guys in the group ordered a steak. Then came out, it looked like something you'd get at Denny's. It was like gray. Like when they asked him, he's like, he's like, I want it medium rare. And they're like, it comes cooked or raw. Like there's only two levels. But then as he's eating it, he's complaining. And he's complaining about how bad this steak tastes. And we're like, bro, you're at a seafood restaurant at the beach. What did you think a steak was going to be like? And so Jesus is having this moment with the crowds. He's like, what did you expect to see? Like, did you honestly think a king was just gonna roll out in the wilderness and post up and live there and eat locusts and honey? That's not how kings live. So he's saying to the crowds, he said, what you expected of John is not what you got, which is very similar 
to the response they had toward Jesus. What they expected of Jesus is not what they got. So you're not going to find royalty in the wilderness. You're going to find royalty in the palace. Verse 9, were you looking for a prophet? It's a rhetorical question. Jesus says yes. And he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. Were you looking for a prophet? Absolutely, they were looking for a prophet. For hundreds of years, the nation of Israel had prophets that would speak on behalf of God. God would send people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, go to the back of your Old Testament, all those books you never read, all those guys are prophets, Hosea, Jonah. And so there are always these prophets that existed within the nation. But then when the book of Malachi ends, which is the last book of the Old Testament, we, go, we enter what we refer to now as the silent years, where God didn't have any messengers, at least that we have recordings of. God didn't have any messengers delivering his message. And so you'd have generations come and, and generations go, and the generations of Isaiah would tell their kids about this prophet Isaiah. They would tell their kids about this prophet Jeremiah. Another prophet would be raised up, and that generation would tell their kids about the prophet that was in their day. And then generation after generation after generation came and went, and there were no prophets. Were they looking for a prophet? Absolutely, they were looking for a prophet. Because the last thing God said to them at the end of the book of Malachi is, I'm going to send someone. And Jesus is quoting Malachi chapter 3 in verse 10 when he says, Look, I'm sending a messenger ahead of you, and he'll prepare your way before you. So Jesus says, yeah, you were looking for a prophet, but he wasn't just a prophet. He was more than that. John was the, the last of the Old Testament prophets. You say, well, what's he doing in the New Testament? John was the link between the old and the new, between the old covenant and the new covenant. And Jesus said he's more than just a prophet. He's the guy that we have been waiting for for hundreds of years in Malachi chapter three, the one that would come and be the forerunner, the one that would prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah. Jesus says he's that guy. In essence, what Jesus was saying is John is the forerunner and I'm the Messiah that you have been looking for, knowing that they are rejecting his offer of the kingdom. And then he goes on in verse 11 and he says, I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived None is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. We talked about this last week. Think about John the Baptist, the greatest. How about Moses? I think I'd put Moses in the, you know, you debate the goat in sports. Like, is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron? It's clearly Michael Jordan. Um, you know, so, you, so you, you stack them up. You go, man, who's the goat? Like here, Jesus is like the goat is John the Baptist. Moses, awesome. Abraham, father of faith, amazing. But the guy who's above all of them is John the Baptist. Then he says something interesting. He said, yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So here's what, he, here, what he's talking about in reference to us is that the least and the greatest and least in the kingdom is greater than John simply because John was able to talk about the kingdom, proclaim the kingdom, prepare the way for it, but, his life, but in his lifetime, John never experienced it. 
We are greater than John in the sense that we are more privileged than John. We are blessed to have experienced what he could have only imagined. Verse 12, it says, And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, this is a period of about 18 months, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We've got to take faith and trust in Jesus' words. I don't care what's happening politically in our country. I don't care what anybody else tells you. I don't care what some expert on the Joe Rogan podcast has to say about it. Jesus' words are true. Not even the gates of hell can stop the advancement of his church. He said, I will build my church. He says, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. Man, anytime God is doing something, you can be certain that Satan is going to be attacking it. When you take steps of faith, when you say yes to Jesus, whatever it is that Jesus is calling you to, I can promise you Satan is going to be, is going to be resisting it. And for, a lot, for many of us in here, what we do is when we start to experience resistance, we see that as a sign that we need to retreat. Just because you're experiencing opposition does not mean that you are out of God's will. Opposition may, in fact, mean that you're doing exactly what God wants you to do because Jesus said, the kingdom is advancing. I will build my church, but you can be certain that Satan and all of the forces of evil are doing everything in their power to stop it. Satan doesn't want you to say yes to Jesus. Satan doesn't want your marriage to be healed because broken marriages made made whole make the gospel appealing. Satan doesn't want you to care about your neighbor finding and following Jesus because that's how the kingdom advances. Whatever God is doing, Satan is gonna be attacking. But in spite of the attacks, the kingdom marches on. The the kingdom continues to advance. Verse 13, for before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to this present time. And if you are willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah. The one the prophet said would come, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. The last two verses of Malachi, so the last two verses of the Old Testament, tell us that God is going to send Elijah. So there's there's a lot of debate about whether John the Baptist was Elijah or not. In John chapter 1, when the religious leaders come to investigate John the Baptist, they ask him straight up, are you Elijah? And he says no. So John says no. Jesus uh, Jesus right here said, if you can receive it, he is Elijah. So, so there's, there's some question about what, was John, in fact, Elijah? Is, is the prophecy about Elijah, about Jesus' second coming or his, or his first appearing? If you remember, we talked about last week, the, a lot of the, the, the rabbis in Jesus' day believed that there were actually gonna be two different messiahs, one that would come and suffer and then one that would come and rule and reign. And so Jesus said, no, there's not gonna be two different messiahs, there's one messiah with two different appearings. The, the first time he came as the suffering servant, he will return as the, the conquering king. So the question is, was, was Elijah the one that would come before the first appearing of the messiah or possibly before the second appearing? I'm just going to tell you straight up, I don't know. Uh, we, we can debate. I could actually, I think I could educatedly debate both sides of it, but it just falls into that category of like open-handed issues. I would call it data that don't matter. Like, it's important, it's interesting, but it's not foundational and critical to our faith. 
Other places, like uh, Luke chapter 1, it says that John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's possible. It's possible that that's what Jesus was referring to, that, that he had a lot of the similarities, the power, the spirit of Elijah. And if you study Elijah and John the Baptist, they had a lot of things in common, a lot of, uh, a lot of similarities. So we don't know. Verse 16. It says, to what can I, so now here's where you're going to start to see a noticeable shift in the way Jesus addresses the crowds. Verse 16, he says, to what can I compare this generation? It's like he's done a hard stop in the conversation about John. He says, it is like children playing game, playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs, and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs, and you didn't mourn. The square is where kids would have, would have played. It's kind of like for us growing up. If you were a kid that was outside a lot, I, I was. Uh, two of our kids, our older two kids, love to be inside, but Hannah, our youngest, loves to be outside. We actually call her the feral cat because she's just like never in the house. And so the kids would play outside. And like every generation, it's, it's, it's cool to read this from 2,000 years ago. Kids love to mimic adulthood. Like all the games used to play, uh, you know, play house, we'd play school, we played a lot of sports, and so uh, we would play baseball, and we would mimic the swings and the pitching styles of our, of our favorite players, and we played on teams, we would wear the, the gear that our favorite players wore, and so as kids, as children, we mimic adulthood, and so Jesus is saying the kids would play these games in the public square, and, you, and you'd have the, the wedding party. And then part of the group would, would be the wedding party and then the musicians and they would play the music and then everybody else that was playing, their job was to dance. So we play the music and you dance. And Jesus says, this generation, man, you played the, the wedding songs and I didn't dance. And so then you said, all right, if he's not gonna dance to wedding songs, let's play some funeral music. Maybe he'll mourn and dance to that. And Jesus said, you, you played the songs, you played the music, but John didn't and I won't do what do you expect us to do? Jesus is addressing the reality that he was not meeting the expectations they had of him. He said, you played the music, but I didn't dance. Jesus, we played the music and you ruined the fun. And you know, I read, I read passages like this and I, I don't wanna find myself right in it, but I often find myself right in it because I'm like, I may not say it this way, but I know I've been there. Like Jesus, here's the plan. I think my plan is a really good plan. I've talked to three people. Uh, you know, I've talked to the elders on, this, on the uh, at generation here. They think it's a good plan too. We think you should bless this plan. Like Jesus, do this. Jesus, I'll, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll never do this again. Have you, ever, have you ever prayed and said, Jesus, if you do something, I'll never ask you for another thing again? Anyone prayed that? A couple of heathens in here. I'm one of them. Remember the first time I prayed it, I was 14 years old. I wanted a pair of basketball shoes. And I said, God, if you give me those pair of Nikes, I will never ask you for another thing again. And then the second time I asked was when I was 16. And then as a 27-year-old in 2004 in game seven, when the Red Sox were playing the Yankees, I'm like, if you give me this one thing, I'll never ask you for another thing again. Man, we are the first century Jews. Man, we're playing the music. We're telling you what we want. We're telling you what we need, and you need to respond. You need to meet our expectations. And Jesus doesn't meet the expectations of the first century Jews. And John didn't meet him either. Verse 18, he says, For John didn't spend time eating and drinking, and you say 
he's possessed by a demon. Like John, John did all the things that, that they wanted him to do. He fasted. He took the Nazarite vows. So one of the things that meant was that he would abstain from consuming alcohol. So like he did all the stuff that you want him to do and, and you say, oh, he's possessed by a demon. The son of man, Jesus referring to himself, says on the other hand, I feast and drink. And you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. He said, you didn't like John's way and you rejected mine. He says, I didn't meet your expectations. And you know, with 2,000 years of hindsight, we look at the expectations we have and we're able to separate ourselves from it so it doesn't make sense to us. But if you could put yourself in the position of the first century Jew, the expectations they had made perfect sense. For centuries, this, this cycle took place in the nation of Israel. It's God established a covenant relationship with them, said, if you will be my people, I'll be your God. They then would go chase and worship uh, idols, worship false gods. God would allow another nation to take them into captivity, and that was God pouring out his judgment on them. They would cry out, and they would repent. God would send someone, would raise someone up to deliver them from captivity, from oppression, Everything would be good again, and the cycle would start all over. And if you read your Old Testament, I just basically summarized the entire Old Testament. That was it, right? You don't have to read it. I just gave it to you. 39 books of that. So now put yourself in the position of the first century Jew. They've seen this cycle play itself out. They believe that God is going to send a Messiah, a promised one, that would deliver them. And now they are under the authority, under the rule of Rome. Rome was an oppressive uh, very, uh, very harsh, brutal enemy. And they're in captivity to Rome, waiting for a Messiah, waiting for God to raise someone up to deliver them. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He's not only one that's gonna deliver them, but he's going to be the conquering king. Can you see now maybe where the crowds would make the assumption, would believe that the Messiah would deliver them from Rome? I mean, it just makes sense. And so, so for them, they set this expectation that Jesus is going to show up and he's going to deliver them from the captivity of the Romans. And it makes sense when you put yourself in their, in their position. What they didn't realize is Jesus didn't come to deliver them from the enemy that they could see. He came to deliver them from the enemy they couldn't see, the enemy that was the true enemy of their soul. He came to deliver them and all of us from the power and the penalty of sin. But when Jesus failed to meet their expectations, they rejected him. They, they, they cast him aside. They were disappointed because Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do, what they thought he should do, and they discarded him. If you think about it today, expectations for us look awfully similar, don't they? Because, I mean, we, we, have, we have different responses to failed expectations. I mean, in relationships, like in, in marriage, unmet expectations over time lead to disappointment and 50% of marriages end in divorce. You have a job and you expect your boss to be supportive of you over time, that unmet expectation, and you're like, I'm gonna leave and go find another job where I can find a boss that's gonna meet my expectations. 
And as followers of Jesus, a lot of this life is going to be lived navigating in and out of unmet expectations of God. Now, expectations are about us. I'm not telling you God is setting expectations, then not meeting them. God does what he says he's going to do. But following Jesus, that's why Jesus said, man, take up your cross. This is not going to be easy. This is not always going to be fun. You're going to be disappointed. But take up your cross, surrender, submit, and follow me. And we're going to experience times where he doesn't do what we want him to do. I've shared this story uh, a little bit over the last few months, six months ago when my pastor died. To this day, I, in my life, I'm not going to ever understand why God allowed that to happen. If I look at it and ask all of the questions, I'm like, man, this is a guy who is passionate for the kingdom. The kingdom was moving forward because of what he was doing. All of these things, like, like we believed. It wasn't a question of faith. Man, I had so much faith. I was like, man, I'm going to I'm gonna go raise the dead. Like I've, like, I've got that kind of faith. I could tell a sick person to be healed and they're gonna be healed. Like, my faith was strong. It wasn't a matter of faith. I believed that it made sense and God didn't meet my expectations. To be honest with you, it's it disappointing. This life is, is gonna be full of disappointment. We don't have the perspective God has with his infinite perspective and our, and our limited focus, oftentimes we're going to be disappointed. Philip Yancey wrote a book called Disappointment with God. It talks about not just the big disappointments, but the, the, the everyday disappointments that we experience. He said, disappointment with God does not come only in dramatic circumstances. For me, it also edges unexpectedly into the mundaneness of everyday life. I have found that petty disappointments tend to accumulate over time, undermining my faith with a lava flow of doubt, and I start to wonder whether God cares about the everyday details about me. I am tempted to pray less often, having concluded in advance that it won't matter. And have you ever been there? Because I know I have. I want to pray about something, but I'm like, he's going to do what he's going to do. It doesn't matter. And so when we experience disappointment, ultimately it's going to do one of two things when it comes to our pursuit of Jesus. It's going to either drive us further away from him or it's going to drive us to him. And with the crowds, the crowd said, man, you're not going to do what you want us to do rather than going, okay, tell us about this kingdom that you're saying is greater than anything we could possibly imagine. They said, no, you're not going to do what, what, what we want you to do. We're disappointed, so therefore you're dead to us. And for you and I, what are we going to do when we experience disappointment? And I promise you, as a follower of Jesus, you're going to. If you've never been disappointed as a follower of Jesus, you're straight up lying to yourself. It just happens. And disappointment can draw us to him or repel us from him. Anytime I think about disappointment, I constantly find myself drawn to the Psalms. Psalm chapter 13. So David is the, uh, the psalmist. David's the, the, the king of Israel. He was the second king. But he's the king that, that God said about David, that David was the man after, God said, he's the man after my own heart. But David was a guy 
that just kind of wore his emotions on his sleeve. David was a guy that talked about disappointment all the time. You know, God, like, deliver me from my enemies. God, where are you? Like, I think David vocalized a lot of the things that, that we've convinced ourselves it's unspiritual to say. And I'm like, man, if David said it and God said, hundreds of years after God said he's the man after my own heart, then maybe it's actually okay to vocalize this stuff. But Psalm 13, when David is in despair, I just want you to listen to what he says. He says, oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? And you can just sense God did not meet his expectations and David is disappointed and this is the outpouring of that. Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore to the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them, don't let them rejoice at my downfall. And then I want you to hear what he says in verses five and six. I think this is so important for us. When we navigate unmet expectations and we deal with being disappointed with decisions, with the things God does, with the things God allows, this is what we anchor to. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. See, David confesses how he feels. But then he concludes with what he knows to be true. You know, most of the time in our lives, we, we allow our feelings to direct us. But what David does is he acknowledges how he feels, but then, but then he redirects his feelings to what he knows to be true. Like, God, right now, I don't feel like what you're doing is loving, but I come back to the truth that I know that I cling to that you are loving. God, I don't think that decision was good. That's how I feel. But I redirect my feelings to what I know is true, and that is God is good. It is his character. Goodness is in his character. He does good because he is good. He says, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your unfailing love. Think of Job's word. Job said, even if you slay me, I'm going to trust you. So I'm going to trust in your unfailing love. I'm going to rejoice because you've rescued me and I'm gonna sing because you're good. As you and I walk through life as we navigate disappointment, we gotta know what it is that we're anchored to because if we anchored to how we feel, we're gonna be all over the place. And when we feel good, God's good. And when we feel God, Feel, when we feel bad, God's abandoned us. So I think it's important to acknowledge those disappointments, but then redirect those feelings to what we know to be true, the things that are unchangeable. I ask you to bow your heads with me. I ask you to have you guys stand as well with me.
We're going to do a song this morning. Uh, we've done it. We did it a few months ago. It's called Catch Me Singing. And it's a song that Mike, our worship pastor, sent to me uh, a few days after Jimmy died. And it just says some things that I have to preach over my feelings. My favorite line is, you've been God for a long time. The understanding is, you've been God for a long time. I make a really bad God, and I haven't been at this for very long. And that regardless of what we're experiencing, we can sing because we know he's good. There's a lot of things happening we don't understand, a lot of things that he's allowing that we don't know why, but we cling to what we know to be true. So Jesus, right now, you are good. You do good because it's in your character. Goodness flows out of you. You are faithful. You are merciful, you are gracious, you are loving. And I pray over this room, over every heart that's navigating disappointment with what you're doing or what you're allowing, God, help them redirect their feelings to the truth, to what we know is unchanging. Holy Spirit, just speak to us now.